0: Thank you. I always like you when Alexander um, introduces me in this venue, because she never says stuff like that to me otherwise. <laughs> 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 uh, to That's a topic for another day. Um, this, um, this talk is about um, uh, the Gospel of John, just to get right down to it. I want to have a good, uh, good time for a conversation today, so i got a lot of material. I'm going to keep looking over my left shoulder at the time up here just to uh, make sure we have things right for, uh, again, lots of uh, conversation. I've learned much over the years, not enough much, I'm sure, from names that you'll be familiar with, some of you at least. Leon Morris has written about the Gospel of John, an earlier generation scholar. Leslie Newbigin, one of my favorites on the Gospel of John. William Temple, a great Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote a commentary on John's Gospel. Uh, Raymond Brown, a a great Catholic scholar, has written massive volumes on uh, John. I took a course um, years and years and years ago with Michael Green on this Gospel, which I loved very much and profited from it very much. But most, I must say, most of all, very much most, I have learned... uh, about the Gospel of John from Richard Bockham in volumes like this The Testimony of the Beloved Disciple, Narrative History and Theology in the Gospel of John, Gospel of Glory, Major Themes in Johannine Theology. Mr. Bockham is a world class expert on the Gospel of John. Uh, talked about him in this uh, venue previously, St. Andrews, now at Cambridge. Uh, world class scholar for sure, uh, a man of God. He loves um, the gospel, he loves the one he writes about in uh, such an amazing way, at least so I find it. Uh, the outline, again, getting right down to it, as, as, is, as is up here in front of us, the outline will go, uh, uh, go and look at the prologue, which is a prologue about glory, it extends beyond the prologue. As, as uh, we'll talk this morning. And then there's going to be um, a bit about the author, which again will uh, help to unfold the whole gospel as well. Got to here, uh, author. Please stand up. Mr. Balcom's written extensively about the authorship of John's gospel. Uh, for those of you who are going to fall asleep during the talk, um, remember before you nod off, there's uh, up here I've noted. Um, Uh, something uh, which is relevant to the Gospel of John, the words, I love the girl whose number is 545. Um, I love the girl whose number is 545. So if you wake up at the end of the talk, uh, please do, and you'll you'll have the mystery of these weird words explained to you. It's no big deal. (laughs) But I found them intriguing. (laughs) I love the girl whose number is 545. That's not a phone number. Not at all. I love the girl whose number is 545. Uh, Mr. Balcom again, quotes Calvin with approval as we get underway here. uh, The great reformer said, I am accustomed to say, says Calvin, this gospel, he refers to the gospel of John, is a key to open the door to the understanding of the others. Calvin continues, for whoever grasps the power of Christ, as it is here graphically displayed, will afterwards read with advantage what the others relate about the manifested Redeemer. Close quote. So there's an encouragement from Calvin um, to read, uh, to know uh, John's Gospel for itself and also perhaps as a gateway into the others. Uh, It is a great text as uh, Augustine talks about reading scriptures uh, like reading, as looking at the face of God. So before we do that, uh, let's pray. Our Father, as we look today at your word, may the Spirit of Christ form Christ in us so that we may know and love forever our manifested Redeemer. Amen. One way to read, to ponder, to soak yourself in the prologue to John's Gospel, I'm going to m- keep moving right along here today. One way to do that is to see it as a commentary on the Old Testament, really. And again, much of what I say here today, perhaps all of what I say here today, I realize you know. So we're going over good, well-known ground, but it's such profound ground you can't look at it too often. The prologue to John's Gospel may be seen as a commentary on the Old Testament. Here for sure are, in the, a famous phrase, Greek words with Hebrew meanings. That's a great phrase to know. The New Testament is often that, Greek words with Hebrew meanings. In the beginning, says John, famously as his gospel begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know it so well. Yes. John's words here repeating literally the opening of Genesis, in the beginning. That's how Genesis opens. To understand the prologue's opening five verses... Early Genesis is necessary and, again, quite obvious. Uh, you You know how this works. And God said, says Genesis. Yes. Words initiate. They commence everything according to Genesis. And God said. So the Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the Word. Yes, God said. In the beginning, what's word? And then Genesis themes are woven, aren't they, into the prologue. Life, light, darkness, great elemental words of reality he, he rehearses here. Um, but of course, this is the staggering thing that John's gospel puts in front of you right off the bat, if you will. Genesis is being retold. Who would dare to do that, really? But John's Gospel does that. Genesis is being retold strangely and dramatically. It is being retold. The Gospel of John says, again, right off the bat, a new beginning has happened in the world. A new beginning has happened to the world. world, And here follows, the Gospel of John is this, a witness to this mystery. I want to tell you about a man uh, I have known, we have known, this Gospel says, and he is the beginning of the world over again. That's what the prologue says. Here is a non analogous, to use a little fancy language here, mystery. Jesus is non analogous. There is nothing else like him. Uh, sheerly transcendent he is. This one we have known, I have known, the writer of this gospel says. This man, this mystery that we have met, he defines himself. We can even say that he initiates any kind of witness to himself. That is why the church has a high doctrine of scripture. And if you move away from that, you're moving away from the gospel. Uh, God has sent the infinitely unique mystery of his son into the world. And he has given given to us a unique and mysterious divine witness to him in Holy Scripture. Yes. To understand then the last five verses of the prologue, we simply must remember the story of Moses on Mount Sinai. John says about Jesus famously, we have seen His glory. You recall the the prologue. We have seen his glory, he says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Famous words, we all know them from the prologue. Maybe we know them too well. In Exodus chapter 33, and this undoubtedly is what the author of John's Gospel is thinking of, Moses says to the God he is meeting, Show me your glory. Show me your glory, I pray, says Moses on Sinai. But Moses at most famously sees a passing glimpse of this glory. He is hidden by God in mercy. He cannot see God and live. No. The Old Testament constantly rehearses this. You can't see God and live. Crucially, Moses hears God's name, but God he does not see. And John's witness says this quite clearly. No one, he says as the prologue nears its end, no one has ever seen God. No. Again, he's thinking of Moses. Moses almost saw him, but he didn't. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The prologue is retelling the story of the Old Testament. This one, again, has become flesh, the prologue says. All a very seeable flesh, very seeable Jesus became our very self. I can see you today. You can see me. Jesus was God seeable, if you will. He became our very self. Yes, John says it in the prologue. We have seen his glory. Moses did not see his glory. But we, the witnesses to Jesus, we have seen his glory yes it's worth a moment here of course i think we can say of course just to try and define uh, this word glory just a bit what is glory it is a difficult word it's a common word uh, i noticed this morning during the liturgy how often the word glory shows up john's gospel is in a sense all about glory it's hebrew word, root if you like this kind of thing, maybe here it is a bit helpful. Its Hebrew root is to be heavy. That's what glory is. I, I, you know this. I, I can't help but remember that C.S. Lewis's famous sermon, maybe the most famous sermon written in modernity, one of the great sermons ever uh, in Christian history, is called The Weight of glory. That is perfect. Lewis captures there exactly what glory is. Glory is weight. Glory means therefore it means importance. Glory means wealth. Glory means honor. It means power. It means prestige. Glory means reputation. Glory means visible splendor. Glory means a lot. Uh, all of these things, uh, we don't like to admit it, but we'd all like to have all of that list. The weight of glory. Uh, that last one, visible splendor, seems to me so important. It, leaves, it The last one is, um, it reminds the Bible reader, I would think, of the transfiguration story. Is it not interesting, just sometimes I'll drop little fragments here because no one quite knows what to make of them, although there's a lot of um, speculation about John's Gospel and these kind of issues. It's very interesting to note that John's Gospel does not include the transfiguration story. Some people said John wrote it, the whole Gospel as a transfiguration story. Mm-hmm. Here you see the glory. There, there at the transfiguration, a visible splendor erupts in the presence of the inner circle. Uh, James, Peter, James, John. Visible splendor. And the word glory, um, it, it shifts around strangely. Up, um, as a Greek verb, it, it comes to mean to think, to believe, to suppose, to have opinions. That which is manifest as opposed to that which is its essence behind it. But again, won't, won't go into that now. Glory is a persistent theme in the Old Testament, as you know. Richard Baucom summarizes thus. A bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth hearing. From the the first appearance of the glory of the Lord, writes Mr. Baucom, the glory of the Lord in the wilderness after the Exodus, until Ezekiel sees it depart from the temple before its destruction by the Babylonians... The glory of the Lord is conceived, he says, as a fiery radiance that can be seen only in a veiled form, hidden within a cloud. He continues, only when the glory returns to the new temple in Ezekiel's vision and lights up the new Jerusalem with glory visible visible to all people will the glory appear without the cloud. Thus, he says, in Israel's history, God is revealed only in hiddenness. That's a nice thing to say. I think it's true. What is revealed is both the holy otherness of the God who is a consuming fire and the gracious presence of God in the midst of his people dwelling among them. So writes Mr. Bauckham, summarizing the theme of glory, in the Old Testament. I like that very much. Again, John's great and deeply layered prologue unfolds the Old Testament. In Hebrew, Exodus 34, verse 6, reads like this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What a description of God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. John's pregnant phrase. Can't um, I could show you after the scholarly literature which establishes this apparently without uh, dispute. John's pregnant phrase full of grace and truth, you'll recall from the prologue describing Jesus. John's pregnant phrase, full of grace and truth, is a precise Greek equivalent of the phrase abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yes. Uh, the The prologue to John's gospel takes up the great themes of the Old Testament and relates them all to the mystery of Jesus. Here are indeed Greek words with Hebrew meanings for sure. The, John then, this uh, moves on from the prologue, but you'll see the 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 great themes continue here. John then famously unfolds his, as you recall from your study of the Gospel of John as as individuals and perhaps in Bible studies, John then unfolds his famous seven signs in his Gospel as mighty works, which mighty works reveal Jesus to Israel. Isn't it, it's typical of John's Gospel that the seven signs, seven here, appears to re- represent All of the ministry of Jesus. John has a way of doing this. Uh, In the um, in the synoptic gospels, we have acts of healing, of feeding, of exorcisms. There are no exorcisms in John's gospel. Um, Works of warning, judgment, uh, works like the cursing of the fig tree and others. Again, are in the synoptics. Just for um, a bit of background. Remember the seven the seven mighty works in John's Gospel are Water into Wine at Cana. Isn't that a lovely story? Just to rehearse these, I find, is a blessing. Chapter 2. The Healing of the Official's Son in Chapter 4. The Healing of the Layman in Chapter 5. The Feeding of 5,000 in Chapter 6. Healing the Blind Man in Chapter 9 the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. And as Mr. Bauckham uh, uh, counts them, there's some ambiguity about how to count the seven. He counts the resurrection of Jesus as the seventh mighty sign. Apparently, the walking on water story in John's Gospel and the famous catch of fish at 21 in John's theological imagination, at least uh, in literary terms, he does not count amongst the seven mighty signs. Uh, there they are. Seven means in John always fullness or completeness. John loves numbers in his gospel, um, apparently. Then, at chapter 12, after the signs are, re- or most of the signs are related, there is a summary passage at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Mm-hmm. Then, the gospel, uh, the writer of this gospel invokes Isaiah. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then, um, ominously, he has blinded their eyes, says Isaiah. Uh, says Isaiah. Is it is it the glory that blinds the eyes of Israel here? Isaiah said these things, says the prophet, uh, or says John, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. He saw his glory and spoke of him. John never forgets the theme of glory in his gospel. These are like brackets in the first half of his gospel. Um, again, he quotes, quotes the prophet, He had said these things in uh, in anticipation of the coming of Israel's great Messiah because the prophet had seen his glory and spoke of him. Glory dominates the prologue. The works of Jesus are understood as glory. And then he summarizes as Isaiah saw his glory. It's interesting just to slow down. Mr. Baucom's very good at this, and here I'm summarizing him. There is a simple Johannine logic. It isn't left in the realm of vague rhetoric. There's a Johannine logic that simply goes like this. Jesus is God, visible in flesh. So the prologue clearly says. The signs he works this glory revealed, likewise are very visible signs. Therefore, God's glory is here in Jesus made visible. That's what John is saying. In seeing these signs, Israel saw God's glory. That's the logic. God's glory is made visible. The signs According to John's presentation of the mystery of Jesus, the signs are marvels, compelling, divine recognition. But further, again, we're racing through this, I know, but looking at the whole gospel, Isaiah saw famously, as we all know, a suffering servant, a servant rejected, humiliated, Suffering so that he was mutilated beyond human recognition. And yet, and yet, at the same time, in Isaiah's words, he is one exalted and glorified exceedingly. Isaiah 52, 13 explicitly says that. This one that Israel expects will be exalted and glorified exceedingly. Hmm. John unfolds Israel's true glory in her true identity, that is, in her Messiah, Jesus. There it is. Um, of course, there's a bit of a danger in this. Perhaps a mere juggling with paradox, you know, a humiliated one who becomes glorious. Um We've got to be careful about, again, mere juggling with terms. Mr. Um, uh, Bauckham writes, The paradox of the cross, which is honor in humiliation, visible splendor in disfigurement and death, exists to make us reckon with a love that is sufficient to resolve the paradox. Close quote. Racing here, I know, through big themes very quickly, but I think you get the picture there. The, The great prophet Isaiah saw one humiliated but who enters into glory. John does exactly that with his portrayal of Jesus in his gospel. But there is, again, a logic to it. It is love that takes on humiliation so that it may become glory. Mm. Uh, it's, um, it's not an accident. I didn't think of saying this. here time for it. It's no accident, for instance, as, as you read John's Gospel, there's no Last Supper in John's mm-hmm. Gospel. So what the author does is, he takes the foot-washing story and says, if you ponder Jesus washing his disciples' feet, you'll understand his death. You'll understand his resurrection. You'll understand what he meant by giving out the bread and the wine. Mr. Baucom, I cannot repeat this argument. I'm not up to it. Mr. bockham th- thinks, and I think successfully, he can prove that the first readers of John's Gospel knew Mark's Gospels precisely. Not Maybe not Matthew and Luke, but he's almost certain He can prove they knew Mark. John's Gospel is presented as incomplete in places. Explicitly. It's as if the author is saying, you know things about Jesus, don't you? Well, I'm telling you another another vision of him. It's a very sophisticated document, John's Gospel, for sure. So there is the prologue and its theme of visible glory. And a very brief look, very, very, very brief look at its unfolding throughout the gospel or at least throughout part of the gospel. Uh, The prologue opens out into a a story of glory in mighty works and how they're understood in the Old Testament as anticipating uh, the mystery of Jesus. Mm. Uh, Prologue, glory done. 9.32. 9.32. Uh, a, sorry. Shouldn't should, uh, look and think aloud. There is a, there is a strong... Uh, this is a bit less, uh, less weighty. If I can uh, uh, paradoxically use that word again. There's a strong and usually unconscious belief, a belief which is extremely reasonable, reasonable enough, that the people nearest to Jesus nearest to Jesus of Nazareth were among the famous 12. Very common sense thing to believe. Especially, and this is more reasonable for sure, that people like Peter, James, and John, the famous inner circle, um, were the Lord's best friends. They seem to be portrayed that way, especially in the synoptics. Mr. Bauckham believes um, that this is probably wrong. And the story of the authorship of John's Gospel, he believes, is woven into this Gospel. And speaks, uh, Mr. Bockham and the Gospel that he's writing about speaks to this issue fascinatingly, if that's good grammar. Um, The author, Mr. Bockham believes, has placed himself in the Gospel. So as to highlight the purpose of this witness to Jesus, which is John's Gospel. There it is. This Mr. Baucom believes, let me hasten to add, that this author was indeed the one closest to Jesus in the days of his flesh, as we say. Mr. Baucom believes that for sure. We're reading the witness in John's Gospel of the man who probably knew Jesus as good as he was knowable in the days of his flesh. So, to this end, let me just run through a few passion, the passages. It's good to hear the voice of the Gospel itself here. So bear with me, but I think it's interesting. Those of you who love John's Gospel, I hope will enjoy this. Uh, if, if need be, uh, you, we might think of what follows here as a kind of thought experiment. Um Maybe for some, like a kind of uh, a political platform. Here's a thesis. Here's a set of ideas. What do you think of this? You know, we've heard a lot of them recently. At chapter 21, right at the end of John's gospel, verse 20, we hear the famous story of, uh, the Lord tells Peter how he's going to die, famously. And Peter turned, uh, Peter turned, there's a quote from John's gospel. Peter turned and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Which, as you know, is a reference back to chapter 13, verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. And then, so, at the end of the gospel, Peter wants to know, how he, this beloved disciple, is going to die. Peter was a curious guy. And Peter famously was rebuked by Jesus. What is that to you? I wonder how Jesus said that. I'd like to have an actor do that at Pacific Theater. And oh, there'd be so many different voice intonations that you could do. Peter, what's that to you? Or, Peter, shut up! You're always too curious. Get on with the job I'm giving you. After Mary Maglin finds the tomb empty, she runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the Gospel says at chapter 20, the one whom Jesus loved. Yes. How close this disciple is to Jesus. While on the cross, we continue our race through the Gospel here, While on the cross at chapter 19, verse 26, we hear this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and we all know the famous story, how moving it is. The crucified one gives each of these to the other. From that hour, says the gospel, the disciple took her Mary to his home. This beloved disciple is so close to Jesus that Jesus entrusts his mother to him. Can you imagine? This one then, this one sees a Roman soldier thrust a spear into Jesus. And then we hear, at 1935, he who saw it has borne witness. Amazing stuff. At the time, just after the Lord's arrest, at uh, chapter 18, verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple, says this gospel. So did another disciple. A disciple, we are told, known to the high priest. Imagine that. And he gains entrance for Peter into the court of the high priest. Nice anonymous guy in the gospel always doing things. And finally, racing back through the gospel, if you've noticed, we're going backwards here for the most part. Finally, at the opening of John's gospel, Andrew, you'll recall, followed Jesus to the place where he, Jesus, was staying, accompanied, uh, it's very subtly uh, stated here in John's gospel, but um, close, close, hyper-close readers, like mr bockham noticed these things uh, he's accompanied by an unnamed disciple he's not named in the text it was about we hear in this text it was about the tenth hour says the gospel witness that's that's uh, remarkable about the tenth hour whoever was there is saying i was there i was there <coughs> It's about 10. Yeah. What are we to make of... Again, here's one of these little fragments. I just I don't know what to make of it myself. I don't know if Mr. Balkam really knows what to make of it. What are we to make of the fact that in John's Gospel, the 12 appear for the first time at about chapter 6, verse 67. Without explanation, with no account of their appointment as a group. The synoptics, you know, they get appointed the twelve. They're always a different bunch. Tom Wright likes to point out the lists never agree, because the the twelve miss is important. Who who composed the twelve isn't that important? Names are always interesting to note in the gospels. Mister Balcom is a world class expert on names in the gospels. Uh, For instance, just one example. Again, this is a little fragment, but uh, interesting things to think about. And especially in in the context of Mark's gospel, of studying it uh, with some care, these things might come up. In Mark, famously, you know, we hear of the violence in Gethsemane. One who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So witnesses Mark. Anonymous actors both. One who stood by struck the servant of the high priest. Not so in John. In John we see, we hear, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. And then John says, Are you interested? The servant's name was Malchus. <laughs> I'll tell you his name if you want to hear it. Mark doesn't tell you his names. The names. John does. Why? Why, 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 why? You can talk about that after. I've got There's one theory, it's, but, but later. Um, summarizing here, as so we move right along, lots of time for conversation. Lovers of the Gospels love to discuss these things. This anonymous disciple then in John, remember now, he sees the witness right at the at the at the at the beginning of the gospel. He sees the witness of John the Baptist. He was there and sort of he's at the transition from the Baptist over to the ministry of Jesus. He is next to Jesus at the final supper of his life. He stands this anonymous one at the foot of the cross. He receives Mary into his home. He sees the sword thrust, which confirms the death of Jesus. The anonymous one, he races with Peter to the tomb and he believes famously before Peter. Remember, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. He's very close to Jesus. He seems that he has insight. And finally... There's one more place where he mysteriously shows up in this gospel. And you recall right at the last the last chapter of this gospel, as Jesus prepares breakfast on the seashore, it is this disciple who first recognizes the stranger on the shore who had famously said, Try the other side of the boat, guys. And he calls to them. Remember? And this one says, It is the Lord. He sees him at a distance. He recognizes Jesus at a distance, this guy. Um, It is reasonable to believe that the author of John, right at the end there's some kind of editing that goes on at the end of John. We have seen that, that there's a witness to his witness. There's an editor there. It is reasonable to believe that the author of John... Or the editor, the, the, the editors who did a little bit of work at its end, they know, surely, who this disciple is that's always anonymous throughout the whole gospel. They know who he is. It's very reasonable to believe that. It's also extremely reasonable to believe that the first readers of this gospel knew who it was, the first hearers of this gospel, they know who this guy is. Why is he anonymous in the text? Mr. Baucom believes, remember this, hear this as a thought experiment if you want. Mr. Baucom believes this is a literary device. It is meant to draw in later people like us, attentive readers, into the gospel. Here, is and Mr. Barclay's the author of this gospel is saying this? Actually, he's saying it about himself. Here is an ideal witness of the life of Jesus. Again, he was there when Andrew went to see where Jesus was sa- staying. It was about the tenth hour. Mr. Barclay literally means that's the beloved disciple, saying I was there. Yeah. He was there on the lake and said to Peter, it is the Lord. Here is the one again at the beginning and at the end of the mystery of the story of Jesus. He's there. He's just there. He is indeed presented in this gospel as one possessing, uh, this is a quote from Mr. Uh, Balcom. he's presented as possessing priority in spiritual recognition. That's how he's presented. He is spoken of at the gospel's end in very interesting terms. Again, Peter, having heard of the nature of his death, desires to know about this unnamed disciple, unnamed in the text. And again, I'm repeating myself, Jesus says, what is is that to you, Peter? What if then, but this is the interesting thing, if you recall the end of John's gospel. Jesus says, what if what if it is my will if he remains until I come and famously this was a saying misunderstood by some to mean that the Lord would return before his death it's very interesting the way these these themes present themselves in John's gospel the early christians you know did wonder for a short while i don't probably without too much anxiety but the early christians did wonder about the passing of the apostolic generation there was a concern in the very earliest church for well what's going to happen when the guys who knew jesus personally when they all die off want proof of that you find it clearly in second peter since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, 2 Peter 1:14 and 15 says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may at any time recall these things. There's a concern in the early church, witnessed to in the New Testament, about what are we going to do when the eyewitnesses apparently are all gone because they're dying off. There's a concern there. This ideal witness leaves behind an, ide- an ideal witness. This person witness leaves behind an ideal written wo- witness, a graph a and his death is not recorded at the end of the gospel. It's almost as if in a, a literary device saying very subtly, he lives on, you see, in his witness. Ah. The scriptures are as good as a living voice for us. The underlying theological uh, subtlety of the writer here. Yes. He seems to remain anonymous to the end. It would be quite strange if he was suddenly named. Why would you name him now? John John. And James, sons of Zebedee, are named at 21 verse 2. That's their first appearance in John's Gospel. There seems to be space between John Zebedee and this guy, this beloved disciple. And there's lots of witness outside the New Testament, the first and second century, that creates space between the two of them. But that's a big topic. Richard Baucom believes that this beloved disciple to uh, to tell you what he finally believes he believes that this beloved disciple is a John the Elder known in the church at Ephesus very well uh, the one closest to Jesus in his earthly ministry. That's who he believes he is. Not not John Zebedee. If it, it could be if when Mr. Martin gets to heaven and he finds out John Zebedee comes over and says, ah, I wrote that. <laughs> He's not going to faint. But he thinks John Zebedee's going to come over and say, you were a good reader of that gospel because I didn't write it. It was John the Elder who knew. T- he was with us always. It was a Jerusalem-based fellow, he thinks. There is a witness in the early church, which Mr. Balcom believes is not true, but that this guy had been a priest. And he wore part of the priestly garb all of his life. Imagine if the writer of John's Gospel had been a priest in the temple, who had heard about the Messiah and had believed. He does have access to... the. T- he gets Peter right into the court. Uh, he, he seems to be, always be southern-based, this guy. Seems to be a man of... Uh, he's confident enough in his position that he'll stand at the foot of the cross. Uh, he wasn't afraid. Uh, you get the impression from the synoptics that in Gethsemane, John... Zebedee and the others just took off in terror. This guy has standing. He stands. But, there you go. Um, this is by way of indicating that John's Gospel really is just a, and um, I speak to the choir, is simply a most profound piece of writing. Um, it, is, it is, if you will, a profound and deep surface. You can read this right off its surface and and learn much. Most of John's readers would have just been blessed deeply. But it invites, it allows a search for other readings, other layers are there. Uh, Pompeii was uh, famously uh, destroyed, v- Mount Ves- Vesuvius, and uh, um, archaeologists have done so much work restoring it. Found wonders there, haven't they? They found a lot of just everyday graffiti written on walls. For instance, things stupid things like, I love the girl whose number is 545. (laughs) Not everybody in the ancient world was a poet, you can tell. eh? (laughs) I love the girl, but apparently, what you say, in the ancient world, antiquity, that was just common sense way of talking. It's graffiti, it's common talk from regular folks. Hmm. I love the girl whose number is 545. Again, numerology was common in the ancient world. John's prologue, Mr. Bauckham believes this. You don't have to. I don't know if I believe it, but there's scholarly stuff in this volume that'll turn your head. It's so complicated. Numerology, comma John's prologue and the ending of this gospel, especially things like a fish number, like they caught 153 fish, he believes are almost certainly examples of uh, numerology. This kind of composition, um, probably the very number of syllables in the prologue. There's a number, Mr. Balkin believes that has meaning. That this this is a textured, amazingly subtle piece of writing. Uh, John's first readers. Um, John's first hearers, again, almost certainly know, Mr. Bauckham believes, Mark's gospel. It's interesting, he, he makes a lot out of this. John's gospel is explicitly incomplete. He tells you at different points in the text. There's stuff outside the text that you know, but I'm not telling you. He does this. It's explicitly incomplete. He acknowledges, that is to say, other sources for stuff about Jesus. Um, it is other and different from the synoptics, but not in any way contradictory. At least they're totally consistent. Mr. bockham does. I'm sure, all Christians would instinctively believe this, would believe that. I'm, I must end up time for conversation. This gospel, I find this just a very good thing to remember. What I like, like about a good scholar is I think a good scholar isn't afraid to say the obvious or what may be the obvious and he says oh that's so interesting just to remember for instance Mr. Bauckham believes that this gospel must have been composed over many years that's, that's, see, that's an obvious kind of thing to say Yeah. oh maybe John zipped it off on a long weekend <laughs> <laughs> well some people might believe that Sermon notes. And he threw it together. Ah, seven signs. There's an idea. And I must remember the, how many fish they caught. It better, better come up with a prologue. They like philosophy in the Mediterranean world. In the beginning was the word. That's neat. No, no. This was he preached, taught, pondered, thought. maybe used some numerology to so that the structure of the gospel will help the most discerning best readers discern its meaning. And so he does this amazing work. Uh, There's nothing casual here. Again, he believes that the author was not one of the uh, twelve on evidence both internal to the gospel and external. He was a personal disciple of Jesus. He believes that perhaps here is the voice of the man who was closest to Jesus of Nazareth. This is a man who knew Jesus as well as anybody. He was his closest person, per- closest personal closest personal friend. He died at Ephesus. There are witness, witnesses to these things. And apparently he lived longer than most of the closest Followers of Jesus. He lived to be an old man. And people who knew him there said, There's the man, the last man alive, maybe, who knew Jesus of Nazareth. And so he wrote, weaving themes about the end into it so that you would have a picture in subtle literary terms of the ideal witness to Jesus the church has always had this in, in, instinctive knowledge that the John's gospel is often called in the early church the spiritual gospel there's something there are themes constant themes taken from the synoptics which are then in narrative form commented on by John yeah, so you have Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the, uh, the desert as in the synoptics but in John, it becomes this meditation on, I am the bread of life. Did Jesus talk to his disciples privately sometimes in such terms? Whereas in the Synoptics, it's the more like the the facts. But in John, it becomes spiritual meditation. me so. So much in John that is um, just just amazing. It's um, it's part of the subtlety of the Spirit. It seems to me that He would give us Matthew's distinctiveness, Mark and his distinctiveness, Luke and his very distinctive style, and then this utterly strange and yet deeply integrated into the synoptic tradition, but so different at the same time. The, the Spirit is is. It, Proverb: Subtle is the Lord. It's uh, wow. John's Gospel in an hour. There you go, uh, John's not John's Gospel for dummies. That would only apply to me. Uh, there it is. Um, uh, isn't John wonderful? It's, uh, but Mr. Balkum brings me back again to under uh, to an, a deep appreciation. Uh, again, he's got a. Um, He's got a, um, a, I think, a major commentary in the works on John. I just can't wait for, wait for that to happen. But um, it's just before ten. I think. Uh, allow me to say a prayer again, and then we must we must converse about this uh, this uh, great divine document. Um, Lord, thank you for uh, the Gospels and for the for Holy Scripture. May we always read them. Um, In humility, with teachable hearts, may they accomplish in us that for which you sent them. Uh, And we ask this in the name of uh, the Word made flesh for us, Jesus. Amen. There you have it. Please uh, allow I um, think form, form criticism is a big deal and New Testament criticism like, allow them to form in your mind. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm Jane. Just, I'm just wondering um, what this gentleman would say about the author of Revelation. The author of Revelation. He, he takes a very... He thinks it's the same author. Okay. Three epistles uh, the last book and John It's I, and the Gospels. I understand it. But... Uh, I stand corrected on that but I think there's obviously a, a deep family resemblance between gospel three epistles and the apocalypse the, the use of the number seven uh, is just rife in the, of, of the last book of the Bible and it's very prominent in the gospel too isn't it so he likes this um, what do you make of that I, I find it it's supposed to set up resonances in the mind in the heart that that Works over the course of your entire life. Yeah, my favorite number thing in the Bible is one and two Peter. Actually, I don't know. I've always found, uh, someone I, remember, I must have heard in a sermon or in a book somewhere. Um, you know, one Peter talks about Noah; eight eight people um, came out of the ark. It's two Peter, another casual mention of eight people come out of the ark. Why, is a guy giving me a Bible quiz here? (laughs) How many people came out of the ark? Get a sucker if you pass. No, he's saying that um, it's it's, it's God created a new world and there's only seven days in the creation story. So the eighth day is an impossible day. But God's going to create an impossible day and a new world. So the number eight starts to resonate in the imagination and the heart. So seven in John are just... Perfection, perfection. The early church, I think, chose seven, Paul wrote, church, named churches that Paul wrote to, seven of them are chosen. That They represent the perfection of Paul's witness to the churches, I think, I think. Oh, Colleen, I'm babbling. You guys are supposed to be asking questions. I'm I was wondering about uh, the timing of when this gospel may have been written because I've heard all kinds mm. of people on that what, mm. what does, what does think Yeah. About? To most, and they have mm. Yeah. Well, I would just um, um, um I don't know the whole story but, go, but uh, here the internal <laughs> evidence he would point to begin with is that last thing that the last bit of the gospel is raising the issue of what about the the people closest to Jesus dying off because Jesus talks about death. Peter, you're going to die this way, and he wants. What about John? So the issue of the passing of the of the apostles is raised. So he thinks that would be an indication that it's late, because it's dealing with that minor anxiety, and he does take very seriously. Um, Uh, uh, the the theme of some New Testament scholars like Gerd Thiessen, famously in Germany and others very mainstream prestigious scholars who take very seriously the idea of protective anonymity that is to say Mark is early this is crude but I think this is the way it goes Mark is early and therefore it might be dangerous to mention that it was Peter who cut off the high priest here let's not go with names there Let's be quiet. Protect through anonymity. By John's time, it was Peter. Chop. And we even remember it was that guy. Man, Maybe Malchus had become a Christian, the one-eared, or the guy with one ear briefly and then got it healed. So it's safe to mention that indicates later. So John's Gospel is usually put out about 90, 100 sometimes, I think. It may be earlier, though. Some people put it much earlier. I think John Robinson uh, put it quite a- earlier. So no one knows; they're guessing. But there's the internal evidence, according to Mr. Mr. Balka might look at. But um, why doesn't John's Gospel have the Lord's Prayer in it? Why no exorcisms? Why no Last Supper? No actual bread and wine thing why but the great theme of he talks a lot about the foot washing oh, the, the, the humility of Jesus The utter the, in the ancient world foot washing was it was for utter nobodies it was a disgusting thing to do and Jesus does it John's great theme is the utter humility of our God in saving us, you know that way. So it's it's spiritually profound. John's gospel, like very. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of interesting. I'm trying to think of the other interesting things that he notes. Uh, uh, here's here's a. I'm, you guys haven't got your hands up, so I'm going to keep talking. It's interesting that uh, it's interesting that uh, I've heard a thousand sermons, and I I think I still think it's probably true. Nicodemus, you know, came to Jesus by night. Because he was proud and didn't want to, didn't want to be seen with this nobody phenom, admittedly, but a nobody from Nazareth. But Barkham says not. That's probably not true. He thinks Nicodemus probably wanted an extent. He was a somebody and wanted extended time with the guy. So he says, at night, give me five hours. (laughs) And he probably showed up with with a retinue. He was a real somebody. There's lots of stuff about the family of Nicodemus out into the first and second century. They were a famous, filthy, rich family. They were like the Rockefellers of the Jewish community. They were, they were power. Uh, the, uh, Mr. Balkum thinks he can trace their story. So I mean, there's just a different take on. I've never heard that one before. But, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, well, no, there's someone over here. Uh, who, Jane? Who, Phil? Phil, you're you're so modest with your hand. <laughs> Comment on the differences in teaching <clears throat> between the um, uh, between John's Gospel and the other Gospels. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, for example, maybe about everlasting life, about the role of the Holy Spirit, about the teaching, the prayers of Jesus, mm-hmm. about the place of heaven. Um, are there those? Are there significant differences in the teaching mm-hmm. of the Gospel compared to the other Gospels? No, it, well, on the holy things, not. On on the whole, he thinks not. Mm-hmm. He thinks the John is. He thinks you can overrate the difference between John and the Synoptics. Mm-hmm. He thinks John is very aware, especially of Mark, he, and he takes themes that uh, uh, the themes and then and then remembers other aspects of the of the ministry of Jesus and and, and, and brings out the meaning by expand not expanding on as a, as in making up. But remembering that the Lord emphasized this kind of thing as well, I'm trying. To th- I wish I could think of an example. He does give examples, and what will be an aphoristic moment in a synoptic becomes an extended narrative in John. Sometimes that's that's what he'll certainly. Um, the one that stands out for me the most is um, his. Um, John knows that his hearers and readers know the story of the Last Supper, so he says. Now, if you want to know the meaning of that, he says it's not absent from what you know. I can imagine John, but he would then tell the Lord washed his disciples' feet. That's what the that's what the the bread and the wine and the mystery of his death and resurrection means. He he comes to cleanse. He humbles himself, cleanses himself, cleanses us, and then rises up at supper and teaches again. It's almost Philippians 2, in narrative form, would be the foot-washing story. So there's an example. But I don't think he would ever say there's there's a contradiction. There's difference, but not contradiction. Of course, he is going against the time. Mr. Balkam is a um, a wonderful witness, at the movie speaking freely as an Orthodox Christian in, in this kind of venue. Mr. Balkam, you see, is taking on biggies who don't think about John's Gospel like this in any way, and he is he is trying to undermine a lot of mainstream scholarship about John. There's there are people, you know, who read John nine. Um, the the healing of the blind man as a story about the Johannine community and get, getting kicked out of the synagogue and John, this writer is saying oh we're like him we were kicked out but we're being healed by Jesus it's all about the Johannine community and it's not about Jesus, the real Jesus, Jesus of history at all and he's, he's trying to blow up that kind of scholarship I think fairly, very successfully he, he can he can he can change things, Mr. Bacham. He can really undermine a lot of liberal scholarship. He's very good at that, I think. But that's another big that's another aspect of it. Not a pr- relevant right now. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, this should be quick and easy. Uh, I'm trying to put together two pieces of what you said. Uh, that John may have been a priest in Jerusalem. Balkham doesn't think so. No, or in well, but he was obviously on the scene. Yeah, he he, he, was he, he, he lived in John the Elder lived in Jerusalem. Okay, or lived near he it. Got from Jerusalem to Ephesus. Well, yeah, yeah, his ministry would have taken him okay. far so from is far from any uh, bridge between that, point A and point no, B? Not in, that I know of. Not, not that I know Okay, <laughs> I, I was know. just looking for a bridge. Yeah, yeah, there's no... Mr. Bauckham thinks that John's Gospel was written initially with... The author thinks this is going to be read throughout the whole church in the Mediterranean world. There's an obsession with some scholars about, oh no, he only wrote for the Johannine community. And it's all about the Johannine community. Miss Ms. Box says, why should we believe that? And there's no answer. It was just it's, The scholars get sort of tunnel vision about things, mm-hmm. and it needs a guy with a first-rate brain like Mr. D. Whoops, I don't believe. Why should we believe it? He says he doesn't believe that New Testament scholarship works from the ground up. Oh, assured results here, and now more assured results. So you go back to the uh, uh, early assured results and find out, that they're uh, based upon a few guys' assertions, and then everybody repeats them. Uh, you know, d- don't don't get mesmerized by uh, secondary sources. there's a there's a lot of. Anyways, yes, Karen, please. Um, why does Bachmann think that um, the beloved disciple was not part of the twelve, the circle of twelve? Because he, because he's not presented as such in in John. That's all. That's that simple. Which one's the beloved disciple? Uh, the anonymous uh, literary, literarily referred to fellow who is authoring this gospel. The, their first hearers and readers knew who all these people were, undoubtedly. Whenever the Mr. Balcombe's just an expert on names, the study of names has been has really I think thrown a lot of light on on the New Testament. It's been studied very in detail, great detail. But I think the the. Um, the sample size gets up around around three thousand from all Jewish literature, hundred years before Christ out, a hundred years after, roughly speaking, in very rough terms. And boy, the Jews had few names. Lot of, lot of Jews named Lazarus. Lot named John. And lots named Jesus. But they didn't have a wide spread of names. And for about two hundred and fifty years in all of Jewish writing. Not once do you find the name David. Not once. And it's uh, and this is in a community that has very few male names. Not once. No David. They think the, da- n- the name David was so associated with Messianic presence that no family would apparently dare name their boy David. They reverence names, these people. Uh, uh, Martin. Martin. Oh, so here's a question which you didn't address. Oh. Really?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want,
0: want more about this girl? Awesome, okay. does. So, um, in mm. John's Gospel, whenever you hear the phrase the Jews, mm. um, it's always um, in a negative context. Mm. And this has caused um, some Bible translators enough mm-hmm. unease that they translate mm. the phrase the Judaizers. Some of them, some yeah. of them Post-Holocaust, issues. And does Borkham address this kind of issue? Sandy, what the, what did he say in that course about how Jews would address one another? And uh, they'd always call one another Israelites, right? No, please. Do you remember, no, you, I don't remember. I thought you did. No? <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you corrected me on this. There's definitely a way that oh, Jews... Before, um, the Hebrews in the Old Testament, they weren't called Jews, right? That's what... It, Dr. Walkey has said that they weren't calling each other in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. They are calling mm-hmm. each other the Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, I, I, um, there are, there are. Um, he is addressing non-Jews. lot often he's thinking about br- the. Uh, that's why early on he says uh, Jesus uh, was called a rabbi. Oh, which means teacher. You don't have to say that to a Jewish audience. So he's uh, he's assuming that he's talking to uh, a big church, on on the, this basis with Jews and Gentiles. So uh, it's in that context that he might talk about the Jews. I don't know. But uh, Tom Wright likes to point out that you often you often even get in a prophet like Jeremiah sometimes reference to the Jews. So it might be a kind of ironic. John's gospel is filled with irony. It might mean sometimes the people who are supposed to know God got it totally wrong. The Jews. It may have sometimes that resonance. The Jews are God's people. When they get it wrong, it's bad. (laughs) He came to his own, John says in in the prologue. Jesus belongs to Israel. I I think that Jesus is Israel. He's her true identity. It's like we meet our true selves in Christ and the judgment is that there's my true self in Christ but I'm still over here. And God says there's the judgment. That gap is the judgment on me, myself. Myself in Christ is there but what am I doing here? I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be myself in Christ. So Israel is attacking herself when she attacks Jesus because he is Israel. He is the true Israel. There's the irony of, of John's gospel. He came to his own and his own received him not. This is like, this is a shock. To the world, so um, it's ten It's getting on. Any other John? Yeah, John? You're saying earlier, uh, John. I uh, thought John was one of the twelve. You're saying, before, you're saying earlier, that John's Gospel doesn't mention himself as one of the twelve. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A base, uh, I mean, all Mr. Balkam is saying is, and at one level, it's common sense. Mark especially has a big interest in the twelve. <coughs> And Mark and priority has dominated in terms, at least in terms of New Testament scholarship. Uh, Mark has been seen as having priority. But always we tend to think, especially because of Michelangelo, Jesus and the 12. So that's the crowd. So we get mesmerized into thinking that Jesus, his best friends must have been amongst the 12. And that's a reasonable thing to believe. But Mr. Balcom just says, Isn't it reasonable to believe that Jesus had people very close to him who were not amongst the 12? And you suddenly say, yes. Think of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, how they're presented. They are presented as, uh, I get the right, they're very close to Jesus. He's over for lunch one day, I doubt it. I think whenever he was in Jerusalem, he probably stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus he wept at the grave of Lazarus not just because he had loved this man and he was a friend they were his maybe a family that had taken Jesus in so they maybe they were close John the son just to make the case John Zebedee and his brother correct me if I've got this wrong they sent their mother one day over to Jesus to say, any chance that my boys could be number one and two in the kingdom? <laughs> this is not spiritual insight. John Zebedee didn't, maybe he uh, didn't know much about Jesus. He was getting there, but he, this guy is presented as he gets Jesus uh, deeply. Yeah, yeah, yes? I'm, I'm just I hear what you're saying, and it, it makes some sense, but I still think uh, that Jesus kind of selected the three on several occasions to mm. him. Yeah. Uh, the Transfiguration, the Garden, there was Peter, James, mm. and, John, and Peter was the key figure in James oh, yeah. to some extent, you know. Mm. So I kind of wonder what happened to John that if, if he just sort of disappears into the background. Well, he's, he's in the book of Acts, still. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I like the idea that that Jesus chose uh, Peter, at least, for sure, because he was, a, he was a, an, an activist. He was a leader. He, he was a, a businessman, and he mm-hmm. knew how to make things happen. He was a go-getter. John, the beloved disciple, or John the Elder, whoever wrote John's Gospel, is, de- is presented as A contemplative, excuse me, more the contemplative, more the person who looks at Jesus and feels the mystery of him, senses, would want to think about the foot washing. No synoptic writer records foot washing. John does. Oh, the humility of our Lord, the lowliness. The absolute willingness to identify with the absolute nobodies. He ponders that so deeply. I think. I think very. By the way, on, on foot washing, forgetting foot washing is um, Mr. Bachem. I've never read about foot washing before. Only one other place in the New Testament is there even a reference to foot washing, and it's from Paul in the in the. In uh, a pastoral one or two, it's either First Timothy or Second Timothy. And he mentions about widows who have served the church well, have washed the feet of the saints. That's the only other reference to foot washing in the New Testament. And apparently out 1st first sec- first century, 2nd century, 3rd century, there are f- various references uh, in different places to foot washing in, in, in um, non-canonical church writings. Mr. Balcom wonders, was foot washing perhaps more common both liturgically and as Christian practice in the home um, than we realize? He wonders if foot washing was uh, perhaps part of the story of early Christians because this was a shocking, Mr. Mm-hmm. Balcom likes them to say, this is a, a shocking thing. It's a shock, almost a shocking, it's not, it's, it's, it's in the same, re- the cross is shocking, but the foot washing is quite shocking, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and became this lowly slave who did work which only slaves did.